All right, we are in a series on the Corinthian letters. We completed the first letter, then looked at the Benedict option that we were discussing. And two weeks ago, we, I did an introduction to the second letter. It appears that Paul sees his letters as one of sorrow, 1 Corinthians, and one of joy, 2 Corinthians. The sorrow of the first letter is the problem of disunity and division among the uh, believers, as well as major sin that they were tolerating in their community. His theme of unity through love in the holy community is repeated in several ways as he teaches them how to do that in the light of the gospel of resurrection. His second letter, a much more personal letter, is a letter of joy in their fellowship and that their love becomes part of his comfort. If the sorrow resulted in disunity, joy is the result of comfort. And that's the theme of this letter. When we have a spirit of humility and reconciliation and an eternal perspective of what God is bringing about, we have comfort and joy as we wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come. And I think that uh, as the first book is about unity, the second book is really about comfort and joy in that sense. Uh, It's interesting that we sing tidings of comfort and joy. Uh, And that's related to Isaiah's uh, statements. So we live in a time of Christian disunity, but Jesus said that the sign of our discipleship is our love for one another, and that love creates unity. We also live in a time of great suffering, and the suffering will not end in this life, so we need God's comfort. And that is the theme of the second book of uh, to the Corinthians, and in a sense to us as well. I'm going to look at the first 11 verses. I'm going to take this in more bite-sized pieces, because I think this book is often misunderstood, uh, as the whole subject of suffering and comfort is misunderstood in our, in our culture. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, uh, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So he begins with his normal greeting, nothing really unique there, uh, but he does address it to all the holy ones. It's not just the Corinthians he's talking to. He's talking to all the believers, particularly in the area. But as we have seen, Paul tells each of the churches to read the letters to the other churches. So while he talks some personal stuff to each church, he's also talking in general for all of us as believers. In the second uh, verse, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That verse is the ironic blessing shortened down. I talked about this before, but I want you to take a look at it, uh, because we use the ironic blessing in both its long form uh, and its short form, and it's important that we are reminded of that. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. There's the grace. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul uses the Aaronic blessing, not as a priest, but as an apostle, blessing the church with that same blessing that is on Israel, because the church is Israel and the expansion of the Gentiles who fear God. And so, he refers to a a blessing uh, coming from God, and uh, our Father, and the Lord, Yeshua, Messiah. This follows a pattern of Jewish prayer, which is common, and begins with the words, Avino Malkenu, our Father and our King. And this is a significant prayer because it, it's used several times in the Yom Kippur liturgy, where God provides atonement in conjunction with the actions of the high priest. And it's also prophetic of the kingdom to come when the Messiah will reign as King of Israel. So his statement in Corinthians, Grace be to you and peace, that blessing from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, God our Father and the Lord who is the Messiah, the King of Israel, shows this uh, framing of Jesus as the High Priest of God and the King Messiah. And we live in a time between his ascension into heaven as high priest and his return as king of Israel. So you begin to see that this is very Jewish at its heart in what he does. So then we reach verse 3. And lo and behold, to use biblical terms, there's another Jewish common prayer structure in the verse. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort. He's using an extremely common form of Jewish prayer called a bracha. Now, I don't have to tell this congregation what that is. You guys do it all the time. This begins with, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech And you know that. And Jews use that phrase at the beginning of all of the blessings, always blessing God. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. And what Paul does is, he attributes that now to God in a unique way. And so he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of of all comforts. And he uses that form in a similar way in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Uh, the letter of Ephesians in the, almost the same context he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so what he does is he is using as a Jewish rabbi would, this blessing and this statement of God um, in, in greeting the Corinthians. Now, just so you don't think this is unique to Paul, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we get the very same structure of the bracha being used by Peter. And Peter uses it in this way, in 1 Peter 1.3, he says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from from the dead. So I want you to catch that one of the reasons that we have been taught 
to use the brachas that way, is that that is common biblical expression. Now, it's not taught in the Older Testament. It grows out of that. But it's clearly found in the, the Newer Testament, and it's thoroughly Jewish in that framework. So it's important to keep that in mind uh, to avoid replacement theology uh, to realize that the apostles, uh, Peter and Paul, are clearly teaching the Gentiles to uh, structure their worship and praise and prayer to God in the case of Jewish uh, uh, routine structure. In each case, the blessing of God makes a statement about what God has done. And here, in this verse, he says that God is the God of mercies, and he's the God of comfort. Now, the God of mercy uh, is a word that means mercy. It means to be compassionate. It's the idea of pity. Uh, It's the idea of loving kindness. All of those words are translations from this this word, uh, and... Uh, we get a clear understanding of that in Psalm chapter 103. Psalm 103. Uh, 103, 10 to 14. Yep, yep. In Psalm 103, uh, beginning at verse 10... Again, remember that he's talking, he's using that phrase that's used in the Day of Atonement when the high priest is providing forgiveness for sins. And he says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy, his loving kindness, towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. That compassionate, loving father. Um, I was touched by Bill's testimony this morning. Because I've struggled my whole life with what does a holy, good, compassionate, gracious father look like in spiritual terms. And it's amazing when you can't see forward. God lets you reflect in your own fatherhood to begin to see glimpses of him. It's, a, it's amazing. Particularly when you didn't have you didn't have that model in front of you. Uh, it's what That's the mercies of God. So, God is the Father of mercies. He's a merciful Father. That's who He is. And He's the God of all comfort. All comfort. Now, I gave you that word before. The word comfort is a word that means to reinforce. It has the idea of holding up. Uh, my best illustration of comfort is, if you recall, when... Trash bags or, or grocery bags were really, really thin, and they'd put a couple things in and they'd rip. And so, what the people started doing was putting one bag inside another. 
which reinforced and comforted that bag. That's really what that is. Comfort is when you're under pressure to be able to maintain in that kind of context. It's not the removal of the pressure. It's being able to endure in the pressure. And Paul's going to talk about that. So, we now reach uh, verses 4 and 5. I want to read those because this is the focus of what Paul's talking about. This God of mercy, this God of all comfort, comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Now, the word affliction here is the word for tribulation, for distress, for persecution, for going through very difficult times. And he says, basically, that uh, the comfort is not the alleviation or the removal of that tribulation, but strength and assurance in it so that we will endure the suffering. And so he says in verse 5, something that has always, until more recently, been difficult for me to grasp. He says that the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also the comfort is abundant through Christ. He links the suffering and the comfort in a way that isn't what we expect. We expect suffering and then comfort. Suffering and then comfort. And he says, suffering and comfort are in abundance. They are simultaneous because it is the comfort that is carrying you through the suffering. Not relieving the suffering, but carrying you through it so that you can endure it. So, uh, they are symbiotic in that sense. We tend to think of suffering as outside of Christ and comfort as in Christ, but that's not what he's saying. In Him is suffering, and in Him is the comfort at the same time. They work together. That's not sequential. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, he addresses this in a greater way. So just turn over to uh, chapter 4 and look at verse 7. I'll talk about this in a few weeks. He says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus, the resurrection life, may be manifested in our body. So, he uses this in a way that shows that they work together. And that's really probably something that we should have seen clearly, but we don't, partly the way we quote Bible verses. I'd like you to, one more thing, I want to give you another verse. Romans 8, 
In Romans 8, you all know this passage, Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God is working good for those who love Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose. He goes on, tells us what God is doing, and He says, who will separate us, in verse 35, from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword? No. Because it is written, these are the verses that tend not to get read at the same time, but they're right here in the middle. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. In other words, we're going to go through these. We're not going around them. We're going through them. But He is going with us. And we will not perish in that process. Though we may believe that we're going to perish. So, the comfort is present in the suffering. And those who trust God know the comfort. Those who doubt or question God don't experience the comfort, though it is still there. He is not abandoning us, even when we don't know He's there. And the more isolated we are, the more likely we are to not know the comfort, because this process of comfort is plural and communal and relational and reciprocal. And that's a piece we don't get. We tend to think people suffer alone. We're not supposed to suffer alone. So, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 6 and 7. So Paul says, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Paul says, if we're suffering, it's, for, it's on your behalf, not just ours. And the comfort that we give is also on your behalf, so that you will have comfort, because you're going to share in the sufferings too. The sufferings are going to hit us all. And the comfort is available to all of us. He says, our suffering is for your comfort. Our comfort is for your comfort. And it's effective in the endurance of the same suffering and comfort which you're going to have. They're shared in the body. The suffering and the comforting is shared as a common experience. And together, they will bring about endurance. I'm going to mention two verses. I'm not going to have you turn to them. I'm just going to tell you where they are. okay? Because I don't want you ripping any pages out of your Bible. Going back and forth. In Romans chapter 12 verse 15. It has the, voice, the verse says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. That's communal. That's what we do when we give testimony. We give rejoices. And we give struggles. Together. And our goal is not to deny the suffering by talking about the rejoicing, nor is it to squelch the rejoicing because we're suffering. Those things have to be together to give us perspective that they're all temporal. 
awaiting the kingdom to come. And that we all will at times be in the rejoicing camp and at times in the suffering camp. And that suffering and that comfort is for all of us to share together, to diffuse in that sense throughout the body. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, If one member suffers, we all suffer. And if one is glorified, we all rejoice. This is not supposed to be individual. It's communal. Together we are sharers in the sufferings and the comfort through Christ. Now, okay, just a little suffering. Okay, just a little suffering. I want you to look at his next verses, 8 through 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivers us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Now, these words, not read much, I don't hear a lot of devotions on it, and it's partly because they're read the way I just read them. So I want to read it a little different. I'm going to change one word that I think is not translated best. Um, And it's the word indeed. So let me read it again. We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. But. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead who delivers us from so great a death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope He will yet deliver us. You see the focus of resurrection? What he's saying is we suffered Greatly. He says we were burdened. We were weighed down. To the point. And then the Greek says. And beyond and beyond. The point of our own strength. Now you've heard. And I've heard. And in times past I even said it. God will not put something on you. Beyond what you can handle. Big time lie. Major lie. Ask Abraham. Ask Joseph. And if you get a chance, ask me. God will put upon us what we can't bear. And he will give us two comforters. His presence by his spirit. And the body of Christ. That like a bag in a bag will come in and hold you. And reinforce you. Because you don't have the strength or the ability. Paul says we couldn't live. We could we despaired of life. Now, that's not a very Christian thing to do. 
But it's a very biblical thing to do. To realize you can't do it on your own. And in these last six months, we have been pushed in our family beyond the breaking point. To the point of despair, of even trying to go on. And it has been the Spirit of God and the community of God that has sustained us. And that's what Paul's talking about. But that is not a doctrine of modern American Christianity. He says, but we already had surrendered our life to forfeit. That's what that verse is. He says, uh, verse 9, we'd already died. That's what this life is. If any man will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive unto Christ. Paul says, I already knew that this life wasn't going to provide anything for me. I am willing and prepared to be dead because I already gave up this life. That sentence of death is already in me. You can't kill me, I already quit. Right? You can't fire me, I already quit. That, that's what Paul's saying. We already had this sentence of death in us. We had already gone there. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. We're looking at this through resurrection eyes. We're not looking through this with normal here, this life eyes. And this God who delivered us from so great a death will deliver us. And he on whom we have set our hope, he will yet deliver us. Even though we've received in this last week some deliverance. That's temporary. There will be another problem. Maybe the same one, maybe a new one. It's, that's going to happen. Life is tough and then you die. Ecclesiastes. Right? But... We hope in the God who raises the dead. So what can man do to us? It's God who justifies. How do any of these things separate us from the love of God? They don't because His love and His comfort from the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort is there with us by His Spirit presence and by His body presence in the context of of the community of faith. I want you to look at a parallel verse to this. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 7. Here's Paul's sentence of death. But those things that were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And be found in Him not a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of trust. Boy, have we had to trust God in recent months. 
There's not enough songs to whoop you into a frenzy. There's not enough quoting of verses. There's not enough uh, getting angry. There's not enough of anything. It's just, God, if you're not here, we're doomed. And he says, be still and know that I am God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Underneath are the everlasting arms. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't taste it. I don't touch it. It's the word of God. Do you trust me? Or do you trust your experience? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. book of Hebrews, I don't have time to talk about it, but the book of Hebrews, very clear that there were those who received the blessing of God by getting the deliverances, but those were temporary. And those who didn't, that they might attain a better resurrection. That those who suffer in this life and the alleviation isn't fully done, have a better resurrection uh, in that context. Jesus said to his disciples, no one gives up anything in this life that he won't receive an abundance of those in the kingdom to come. And so, there is no loss. There's a loss here. But there's a gain in the eternal perspective. So, in this same book, 1 Corinthians, I mean 2 Corinthians, turn to chapter 12. Paul understands this. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, if you had more faith, he didn't say that, right? said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Don't trust yourself. Trust the one who raises the dead. And Paul responds, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. I'm not there yet. I'm working on this. I'm content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. I can list specifics under each one of those words that we've experienced in the last few months. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That idea is that our suffering 
reminds us that we're not getting through this on our own, but the Lord is going to bring us through. The ultimate release and the ultimate deliverance is going to happen at the resurrection. And so Paul realizes that our goal is not to alleviate all suffering in this life, something this culture thinks has to be done. And as a result, we have no capacity for even small sufferings anymore. The American psyche can't take a word said because it destroys them. Because we have lost the ability to strengthen, find strength in the suffering and the grace and mercy of God. So that brings me back to the last verse, verse 11 of chapter 1. And this is the other part. I said two things, the Lord doing it and the community. And here's where Paul brings them into it. He said, and you also joining in helping us through your prayers. That's what I was talking about this morning. We knew people were praying for us, even though in some cases we couldn't contact people. They would contact us and say, your lack of contact tells me that you need prayer, we're praying. And he says... You also joining and helping. Who are you joining and helping? The Holy Spirit. God. You become an instrument of God as the community of faith in praying for those who are suffering in our midst. And he says the reason for this is so that the thanks may be given by many persons on behalf of the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Immediately, when we put the word out that God had given us mercy in this situation, there were people praising God all over the world. Now think of it. If we suffered alone, all by ourselves, we would pray to God. God would answer. And we would praise Him. One little voice. One little household. In this case, there were prayers from all over particularly this community of faith. And when the Lord gave us mercy, there was rejoicing and praise given to God all around the world and especially in this community. This thing is communal. It's not individual. So the Corinthians, by their prayers, joined with God in helping Paul, both in their petitions on his behalf and in the praise of God, in the news of God's mercy, being demonstrated. When they heard of his problem, they asked for God's mercy for him. When God delivered him, in part, because it's never completely until the resurrection, uh, as a sign of that ultimate salvation, they rejoiced and praised God. So they shared in the sufferings and in the comfort and the joy. I think there's a lot for us to learn in sharing the suffering of one another and in joining in prayer and praise as we rejoice. We, many of us have been taught to never tell about hard stuff we're going through because it gives a bad testimony for God. Paul doesn't subscribe to that theology. 
Paul wants those he loves and who love him, who are his comfort and his joy, to know when he's struggling because he knows they cry out to God on his behalf. And he knows that when God delivers him, they will rejoice with him for the mercy of God being given. So this then is the focus and the theme of this second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. He is going to keep addressing this issue of suffering and comfort being a communal thing and that the eternal perspective that we have to have gets us off the temporal things and onto the eternal things so that we can endure it. And in that, we mature and we grow in grace and in knowledge. Let's pray.